Beatles fans, make room on your bookshelves for The Beatles' Get Back. It's the first official Fab Four standalone book since the Beatles' anthology. The 240-page hardcover describes the creation of the group's 1970 album, Let It Be, in their own words, drawn from their conversations in the studio and includes previously unseen photographs. Filmmaker Peter Jackson is writing the foreword. His feature documentary, The Beatles' Get Back, arrives August 27, 2020 four days before the book is published. So is this on your on your list to get? Oh yeah, it is. And I'm sure that it all is also on my dad's list of things he is definitely going to want next Maybe year. Maybe a next birthday present for him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to this week's Wednesday was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, first off, if you've been around on the Facebooks, you know that I've launched another show with our good friends Kid O'Toole and Martin Quibell. Toppermost is the Poppermost. We're really getting into it. By the time you get this, we will hopefully have our first couple episodes out. The idea being that we're looking at the charts, both British and American, from... 60 years ago from 1962 starting out in october when love me do first entered the charts not only the beatles stuff but the related artists because you know everybody is certainly related in one way or another but there's much more about that than you might ever think about and it's good to put it in some context oh yeah i mean you think about the the impact that the kinks had on Paul in particular, that's part of the Beatles story is what was going on around them. And the charts is certainly one way we can look at who was there. Starting out at the very beginning, you get Roy Orbison and they would shortly be on tour with Roy Orbison and how what Roy was putting out at the time would influence the writing of the stuff that would go on the Please Please Me album. Right. And all those artists, Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe and Helen Shapiro. and Yeah. So yeah. on and so forth. They were all charting at the time. It's amazing. They may not have been number one hits. They may not have even been top 10 hits, but there they were between number 10 and number 40 on the British charts. Right. All right. So our topic for this week, it's been a year since Get Back first came to us from Peter Jackson. That's kind of hard to believe because it, it both seems like we've always had it and it seems like it's brand new still. It has that feeling. I'm still enjoying being immersed in a lot of it, which is part of what we're talking about today. 
It's hard to believe it's been a year. Well, I mean, it's like that rap video from the snotty nose res kids. It's like, well, it's sort of both merged into Let It Be and become its own thing. Yeah. In a way that something like Eight Days a Week hasn't. That's the neat thing about Beatle projects. The ones that hit are just instantly accepted into the canon. And the ones that are less so, well, okay, that's there. They're not bad, but they just don't become part of the public consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, I think particularly with Get Back, there was so much new information that it seemed like it was happening in a way. Certainly my son got really into it because it just seemed so immediate. Whereas things like Eight Days a Week come off more as a documentary a historical look back at what was going on and really the most immediate thing that people got out of eight days a week was the screaming girls <laughs> right i mean you know it's something we always knew but you put that up on the big screen it's like oh yeah they really were there and they really were doing all this stuff that's probably the one thing that's really hard to convey to a new audience is the amount of hysteria that went on with Beatlemania you have to kind of have it put in your face in order to have an impact because you could talk about screaming girls but you know not like that it's very different to see them yeah and in the numbers that they were making a splash not just in Britain but in America and they kind of wanted us to take from it the idea that Beatlemania was not just kids having good fun but that there was a sociological aspect to it didn't come off as well as they really wanted it to the pictures of the girls at the plaza hotel had a big impact on nine-year-old me it just seemed like it was a news event (laughs) look at these people (laughs) one thing from toppermost that came up that i found really interesting it wasn't just that the beatles refused to play for a segregated audience at jacksonville Jacksonville did not want them to have their opening acts because, well, there were black folks in their opening acts. It's like, no, we can't have black folks on our stage. The Beatles just put their foot down and said, look, if you don't won't have them, you won't have us. So, I mean, it's not just the audience. It's It was the whole stage show. I mean, the opening act is important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just found that to be almost a more important piece than, oh, you know, segregation in the audience we're not going to allow that yeah that's a point seldom made i think that it was about the performers so all right on to the business of get back get back premiered a year ago over thanksgiving they were clearly trying to reproduce the hype of anthology and while it may not have quite accomplished that and it there's no way it could have being on a streamer being on something that people would have to pay for it still made an immediate impact certainly with the we's you know the we all wanted to see it immediately but i think people have come to the disney channel slowly but surely over the course of this year just to see get back yeah and people are becoming more comfortable with streaming services and i mean it's growing and so That'll be the way a lot of people who before didn't see things that way now have that opportunity. In addition to the film as aired, the nine-hour, roughly nine-hour documentary, we got a streaming version of The Complete Rooftop in Atmos. That's really pretty nice. I don't know how necessary it is. I like that they did it. I would have liked a physical disc with it, just the whole thing as the rooftop performance. Right. And as a package. 
What else did we get? We had a number of little things, but mainly the thing that we haven't talked about that much, we got the book. The big book. The Get Back book that kind of came along with it, but not really, because it's a completely separate entity. Yeah, the book we got actually before the film by a couple weeks, as I remember it. Yeah, I think that's correct. And it's still available at your local Costco or Target or wherever you may be able to find physical books these days. (laughs) Oh, how sad. Yeah. And it's well worth it. It's a beautiful book. I think it's kind of funny that the book is colored the way that the set at Twickenham was colored. And it was one of the things that Lennon complained about. (laughs) You know, all these colored lights trying to make music. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's kind of become the look, (laughs) the iconography of the whole get back. It's either that or it's the rooftop. Right. I mean, I understand why. I just think it's kind of funny. That's how things work out. I mean, there's (laughs) nothing really to show down in the Apple basement. (laughs) Right. Well, how about that big truck with Apple on it? Yeah, that could have been. The idea for a book certainly started back with the original Get Back package. The original Let It Be, the box, which we never got in the States. Right. And it's interesting, in light of the nice book, to go back and look at that, there are a number of photos which are reproduced between the two books but remember the original was a mass market not even being sold mass market bound very poorly book the photos are just not reproduced well in the original get back book right and the book that i found about six years after it came out it was at a record convention i picked it up and I didn't know what it was and then realized what I had in my hands and it was falling apart. Pages were coming out. And so I kind of rifled through and made sure that all the pages were there and then asked the guy, you know, what he was asking for it. And he looked at it. He goes, well, there are a bunch of pages coming out. So how about 10 bucks? (laughs) There you go. Yeah, It was falling apart. It really was. To tell you the quality of the original book, I guess it was in the 90s with one of the big, massive Nagra Reels distributions from the bootleggers. They went ahead and reproduced it, and the reproduction is much nicer than what came with the original box. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? That's great. (laughs) It still had cheap glue, and you will still eventually get pages, but I've got a Canadian copy, and I've got a Mexican copy of the Get Back book. Wow. The one that came with the bootleg is by far the nicest of the three. That's funny. You know, I also want to point out that the original book came out under the auspices of Alan Klein. I mean, he was head of Apple at that point. He should have been more concerned with the quality of the product. (laughs) And then the kind of the last thing I want to say about that, you got pictures and that's great. And I mean, at least we had them for all those years. One thing stylistically they did in the original book, they put together a lot of shots of each individual Beatle and Billy Preston throughout this book. It's almost like a contact sheet of what was going on there. They didn't do quite anything like that in the new get back book. Right. And true to the film, which, in my opinion, the movie Let It Be is just chopped up and badly edited. And this book is kind of the same. The narrative that's printed in there makes no sense at all. There's nothing that's joined together. You have little bits of dialogue, and some of it doesn't even really make any sense. In retrospect, it does. But. And then the way it's presented in the book, it's like they tried to hip it up or something. <laughs> yes. 
they also do a thing where they're reciting lyrics and they say something about Azure Doomy, A-Z-U-R-E-D-O-O-M-Y. And I was like, what the hell is that? Then in reading, you realize it's their hearing of the lyric from Don't Let Me Down, one of the ways that John sang it. But you end up reading it with no context. So like, what is this? Well, it's a good thing they didn't try and reproduce whatever John was singing on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of disappointed that Paul didn't sing the harmony to that. <laughs> okay, so on to the contemporary Get Back book, the 2021 Get Back book. Photo reproductions are much nicer, and it's much more comprehensive, obviously. I would say we have the majority of the interesting shots from Linda and the other photographers around, you know, Ethan Russell and such. Right. I think all the original pictures were Ethan Russell, weren't they, in the original book? Yeah, there may have been one or two Linda photos in the original book. I'd have to double check on that. Yeah. But if they were, Linda didn't get paid for them. Yeah, beautiful photographs all the way through. And some familiar and some not. and. So we're going to go off a little bit into the book now. As noted, we really don't think the book has gotten its due, the modern Get Back book. Right. Lots of really interesting perspective and information well worth getting into. It's got a great intro by a British playwright named Hanik Kurishi. Apologies if I mispronounced his name. Meet the award-winning novelist and scriptwriter Hanif Qureshi. But it's a great little intro. I mean, he makes a case for, hey, they ended the perfect way. This is the way it had to end, in a way. And to just basically play the records and enjoy the music. Yeah, and then we also get a forward from Peter Jackson, where he kind of makes the point that we had mentioned before, that the book was done in isolation from the LP set, in isolation from what he was doing in Get Back. Obviously not in complete isolation, they did share some materials. The flowerpot conversation is reproduced much more completely here in the book, and bits and pieces of what Peter Jackson was doing made his way into the album. So, you know, it's there. Right. They were each allowed to put together the pieces in their own way. Yeah. Well, you know, that was always the, the thing. You, you listen to that particular conversation and you go, well, this is obviously edited down for time. It went on. What other things were said? It was a private conversation. I feel guilty about listening in on it anyway. But the book doesn't even describe all of that. It just says, well, John and Paul and Linda and Ringo and a couple of others are sitting around having a conversation. They don't tell anything about Michael Lindsay Hogg micing it up in secret and them not knowing and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's just, <laughs> right. here they are. They had a conversation. And here are the people you won't be hearing from. Ringo, Linda. <laughs> and Yoko. I mean, you know, but they're there. Right. And they say that they're there, that they're all talking. But all you ever hear is the dialogue between John and Paul. Opening up the book, we get a lot of photos of everybody who's in the film they did uh, a more complete piece on the internet that you can find but it's nice to have just a quick overview the dramatis personae as they list right covering everybody all the way or at least the people who are highlighted down to the level of tony richmond i mean yeah the cameraman and beatles associates and others but you don't have people like the tea ladies or the secretaries and such identified, although they are on screen. <laughs> we only identify the men. 
<laughs> well, we get Heather and we get Linda and we get Yoko. So, you know, they get a screenshot. and They had a part. <laughs> in fact, those are the only women that are in the list here. They left out the picture of Patty coming in, I guess, huh? Well, and of Maureen, who was there on the rooftop. That's right. Act one, Twickenham Film Studios. There's a lot of photos in here. Again, reproduced much nicer than they were and in full context, whereas they were kind of cut down in the original Get Back book, which show you just how large the Twickenham Studios actually were. Yeah, it was a soundstage at one point in the movie, you know, when they're sitting around rehearsing, they're bringing in the ship set for Magic Christian. And it's big. (laughs) And it doesn't take up half the studio. No, not even. It was a big place. From the original film and from Peter Jackson's version, you get the idea it was a big place, but these photos just really make you understand how large and drafty and uncomfortable it must have been for them. Yeah. Nobody was in it at all. I don't know. It was just a a dreadful, dreadful feeling in Twickenham Studio and being filmed all the time, you know, like that. I just wanted them to go away and we'd be there at 8 in the morning and you couldn't make music at 8 in the morning or 10 or whatever it was in a strange place with people filming you and coloured lights. You know, they always talk about how early in the morning it was, and it really wasn't. I mean, it was, what, 11, sometimes 12, could be one. Um, But the atmosphere of the studio and the comings and goings, as I said, at one point they're bringing in the set for another movie. There are people in and out, and you can see in the movie that, you know, there's some guy who stands there with his arms crossed and kind of looks at them rehearsing, creating. It was a bizarre way to do it. Not even counting George and his Hare Krishna friends. Not even them. They have a repro of the call sheet. And, well, what is needed? A table and chairs. <laughs> and a tea set for 30 people. Right. Despite warnings that it would lead to stronger things, the Ruttles enjoyed the pleasant effects of tea. Again, it's like... This is the biggest band in the world, and this is what they need for filming and rehearsing? I mean, most garage bands these days in their rehearsal space would have more. Yeah, and basically what they're asking for was like a crafts table, craft services. We have a a folding table and some chairs. (laughs) Which is what they have there. To brighten up the room, here's a little flower pot with some yellow flowers in it. That's nice. (laughs) After having worked at Abbey Road all those years, they were used to no frills. We get through, there's lots of really nice pictures in order of them, and you can actually see what clothes they were wearing on any given day. We start with the first week, and you can see that none of them are really into it quite yet. Right. Well, George in particular. I'm trying to remember when he had gotten back. It was early December, wasn't it? Yeah. He'd been in the States for several weeks working with Jackie Lomax, and that's when he got together with Dylan, met the band, and so he'd been out there. George is out in the States, just sort of reconnected with Dylan and a few people out there that we sort of lost touch with, seeing if we can pick up the label. It was just barely enough time that had the original plan gone off and they'd done the roundhouse shows, there would have been rehearsal time and getting in, doing a sound check, and doing the show in December. That's about how much time there was from when George got back to the States to when they actually ended up beginning the Get Back stuff. Keeping in mind that the original idea was that they'd be playing songs that they already knew. Well, white album material, predominantly. I'm back in the USSR. Back in the USSR. 
done a show on what might that concert have looked like yes go back to the library check it out (laughs) there's lots of little things in this book that i I found intriguing information wise and the first one was early on first day basically they're talking about songs i think this is on page 36 and they're talking about what songs they could do and george says i mean thinking of all the tunes i've got and they're all uh they're all slowish. I seem to be. Yeah, most of mine are. I've got that Taxman part two. Oh, yeah. Taxman revisited. Uh, five years long. long. But that can be very nice with. But it should be like. Very sad type, you know, with, you know, maybe a string or two. Mm. See, we might have, yeah. see, so far, there's, a, there's just only. A, there's a couple that I know I could do live with no backing. And that was one of them, that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, just with no backing, just with a guitar and singing. You well, that? you know, I, that's how I've been doing it, and that's, you know, how it sounded all the time. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it'd probably be If nice you can do that, do if you can do that, mm-hmm. that would be great. And I'm thinking, what is that? What is Tax Band 2? Well, I mean, we know he had a couple of songs. It didn't necessarily have to be one of those revolver leftovers. We know, well, Art of Dying was certainly around. And that could kind of fill that bill. Huh. I thought maybe Not Guilty. Yeah, but how is that Tax Man 2? Not Guilty is a slow acoustic song. Even right. if they up-tempoed it a little bit, it would not really be a Tax Man. You're not going to have a screaming guitar in there anywhere. If that's what you say is the criteria for something being a tax man too, then correct. But it could be attitude. It could be, that's why I thought not guilty. It's that attitude. (laughs) Not quite F the police, but F you guys. Exactly. But they didn't do it, so. Oh, well, they were certainly thinking about something, but George kind of was, even though he wasn't thinking about a solo album, he was already saying, well, I've got all this stuff, but none of it is either going to fit in as Beatles stuff, or it's certainly not going to be playable live. Yeah, their big complaint seems to be that all the songs they have are kind of slow. There's no rockers in them. George's big song at this point was uh, All Things Must Pass. Which is why it's kind of amazing that on demand, here's Paul McCartney who comes up with Get Back. We need a rocker. Here you go. (laughs) Well, right. So, I mean, it's it's another layer to add into the magic of him actually pulling it out of thin air. He's pulling it not only out of thin air, he's pulling it on demand to fit a specific slot out of thin air. Right. You know, as you go through the dialogue that's in this book, that's what they're always talking about. When John several times referred to, I'm hoping for a little rocker on Sunday, they're focused on the fact that it's They've got to have some upbeat songs. They were still thinking that it would be on a stage or 
a la Rock and Roll Circus. Although there's some interesting quotes in here from John saying that he didn't really like the Rock and Roll Circus, the stagey nature of what the Stones had done there, and that he didn't really want Get Back to be like that. Right. So that's kind of interesting to me. Right. We moved through Twickenham. Uh, before we get to the argument, which we want to talk a little bit about, you got anything from that first week? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a great in-depth discussion about one after 909 about its origins and yeah more than what we get in the film where it's just kind of a little snippet and then it's like mike always liked that one right it takes on a bigger spot than it ever has in a way i mean because there's a good chunk of conversation discussing this do we like these lyrics don't we like these lyrics what do they mean? <laughs> you know, and they actually run through the lyrics and go, so what happens? He shows up and it's not this train, it's a different one. And it comes, they're kind of laughing about it too. And George basically goes, nobody ever listens to the words. And in an old rock and roll song, that's completely the truth. I've never had any question about the lyrics to one after 909. <laughs> it made perfect sense to me. They sort of did. It was just like an old rock and roll song. You know, I, I just didn't think about it too much george also has a, a attitude which i, I really like because they're talking about working on it and george goes let's just not do it anymore because practicing will fuck it up <laughs> <laughs> i think that's kind of funny well especially given the way that this whole project ended up really being about practicing <laughs> yeah yeah in a way that's kind of one of the intriguing things about all this is how they talk about the philosophy of what it is they're doing right after this there's an interesting moment where they're talking about doing songs and both george and i think paul both suggest every little thing which i think is just this interesting choice it's not a hit it's not a major song i always loved it but you know they thought about doing it i'll tell you which is a good one And it's Michael Lindsay Hogg that steers them away. It was like, well, you should do more like old rock and roll songs. Got good golly, Miss Molly. It's like, shut up. Let him do every little thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something we get out of the Nagras. The full Nagras is just everything that they played. And, and again, you know, not to plug the, the Toppermost show again. It's interesting to see they remembered like every song that was on the charts against them because all of these songs just come at least a bar or two come back somewhere in the Get Back session. Right. In particular, like the Chris Montez Let's Dance. It's like there's just two bars of it. And it's like John remembered that and he remembered the words enough to be able to start singing it. Wow. You know, they were very much disciples of rock and roll. They soaked it all up. We, we moved through the weekend. They're grumbly, but they seem to be at least kind of into the project, except for George. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote down, by day three, George was already pushing for not doing the show. Back to what we talked about when we were talking about the film. The book also doesn't take us into 
George's personal life, and you know, well, we know things were going on there as well. Yeah, a more complete picture would be what was going on in his private life, but this doesn't address this at all. Yeah, there's almost a completely separate book that someone could write on what was going on with John, Paul, George, and Ringo during the time that Get Back was going on. Yeah. You got John and, and hooking up with the Stones' dealer, you know, what, Fat Tony or yeah. or is that a Sopranos character? <laughs> no. And, and, you know, all of that. And then George and his personal issues and then Paul and Linda, you know, all of this going on around what we actually see. Yeah. Well, if not a book, a, a really good magazine article. <laughs> That's actually something that, that I'd like to see made into just a 90-minute biopic. Someone could do that. <laughs> yeah. We're on to the Monday, the infamous Monday, January 6th. You get a shot of the Apple van, which you had mentioned. We may have gotten a very short glimpse of it in Let It Be, but we get you know, that glorious shot of it in Peter Jackson's film, and we get some of the stills from it here in the book. Right. Yeah. And, well, we get to the argument. After all this time saying, looking at Peter Jackson's cut of the argument, it's like, well, that wasn't so bad, you know. They weren't really arguing too much. They were just trying to work things through. You read the text, just the bare text here in the book. Paul was being bitchy. Well, when you look at the whole day, as I said, early in that day, George is already pushing not to do the show. He plays Hear Me, Lord. And Paul goes, that should be in the show. He's encouraging about it. I think one of the most interesting conversations that day was them talking about who they were going to play for, you know, who, who the audience was going to be. Yeah, what the audience was. Are you going to have a, an audience of teeny boppers? I mean, what is the audience that the Beatles have now? And Yoko actually has a an idea which is pretty good and really kind of ahead of its time. And she says, why don't you play to 20,000 empty chairs? Which is then followed by a comment which is kind of just ironic in light of what we've just been through with COVID the last couple of years. Uh, they changed it into, oh, we'll just put cardboard cutouts in the stands. <laughs> right. The funny part was that Paul actually is concerned that people will think that they couldn't sell any tickets. Always Sir Paul. <laughs> right. But how ridiculous. I mean, in a way, it's like, no, it, it would clearly be a statement. But the idea of them dealing with the uh, concept of an audience, because I think Michael Hogg suggests, well, you should play in front of people dressed up like kings and rich people. It's like, shut up. You're not. You're not the guy. <laughs> we do get the same feeling on, of Michael Lindsay Hogg that we do from the film. Throughout the book, he just butts in and you go, would you please just be quiet? Yeah. <laughs> His personality definitely comes out in all this. There's also another moment that happens before the, the argument when um, they're going to work on two of us. And John asks, is, is he singing on this? And Paul reminds him that he needs to learn the words 
And John goes, well, I've got them here. And then Paul goes, but learn them. <laughs> it's the old get off book. <laughs> right. So it's a few minutes after that, that Paul realizes to everybody in the room that he can't direct the band on camera. And then they end up talking about kind of the crux of their musical problems. You know, I can't say this, you can't say this, blah, blah, blah. And I think that George was just kind of <laughs> exasperated. Yeah, yeah, it had been part of the conversation. It was on everybody's, but it wasn't that he just kind of got his back up. It was kind of going on for a while. We moved through there. We moved through the rest of the day. I don't really have anything more after the argument. Well, I think that Paul suggests being moved on by the cops. It makes a mention of that. Some of that is in the film, but there's it's extended here. Yes. Hogg says it's too dangerous. <laughs> it's an early thought, and it stays with them, clearly. And I guess they were still thinking about the park at this point. Yeah, I haven't seen it mentioned yet. I think the idea is still coming up. Somewhere in there, they had to put in a permit for the park. Right. The permit, which gets turned down, and you know, given the way that government works, that would have had to have taken at least a week. Maybe, if you're working for the Beatles. You can make anything happen <laughs> at any time. <laughs> right. One only need to ask Alistair Taylor about that. <laughs> Paul also, for a while, complains to everybody that he's kind of pushed this project, but he's not really interested if everyone's just going to fart around. And, yeah. and that's his assessment of it. But then you look at it, and they've gone through a bunch of songs, and they've gotten close to several. And it's only day four. Well, and if they had really decided to go with the oldies concept, they could have put that together. They could have put that together by the 16th. I think they could have, for sure. On the 7th, when they were talking, they're talking about their bad communication. And Paul says, you know, when something came up, we all called Neil instead of calling each other. Meaning that is a kind of a criticism of how they operate. But earlier, Paul admits to George having ignored his phone call. <laughs> Just looking down through the dialogue, George talking about Michael Lindsay Hogg's cigar doesn't smell half bad. Yeah, does it? Right. Especially because we always see him with that damn thing in his mouth. People say that's a holdover from his belief that he was Orson Welles' son. Yes. There's a really nice close up of Ringo playing. It's a two-page spread here on pages 50 and 51. Great photographs. Which is then followed by another nice overhead of them just sort of sitting in a circle playing. Again, showing you just how bare the studio was. And there are the Beatles sitting in this circle. One amp in the middle of... They have a keyboard there. I don't know who they thought would be playing it. Well, I think it's the organ. They used it on All Things Was Pass. When you're working together, you do get into a tight little circle of playing up each other's nose, as John said. And so what that shows really is they didn't need that space. You know, I don't know who thought, well, we need a huge movie set. They kind of said, we're filming a movie. This is already paid for, so why not? But it ended up hurting them more than helping them. Yeah, clearly. Another shot of them, a color shot of them sitting in the circle where you can see Glenn Johns's pants. Oh, my. You know, we thought George was a uh, snappy dresser. <laughs> That's some pair of pants he's wearing. <laughs> it was a dedicated follower of fashion. <laughs> There's a lot from this day, isn't there? Yeah. There was a lot of discussion about interesting things. Well, it's kind of the calm before the storm almost. 
one of my favorite lines. It's in the movie too, but it's when they're George discussing a divorce. And Paul says, yeah, I said that earlier in the last meeting. John says, who'll get the children? Paul goes, Dick James. <laughs> That's such a great line. <laughs> Dick James gets the kids. Which is kind of what happened. Exactly. He predicted that. <laughs> this was in January. Dick James had sold a publishing company in, what, two months? He will have sold it? We're getting to that whole Dick James thing when you can see the, the roots of that are all there. Yeah. There's a photo I like of John holding his guitar up to the Nagra microphone. Right. It's not clear what he's doing. I guess he's trying to instigate some feedback. Yeah, I think that's it. That's a great shot. That's one that I'd never seen before. Yeah. Mal playing the anvil. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure where we're at. That's the end of the seventh. We're on to the eighth now. Yeah. I think it's also telling that George introduces I Me Mine. Do you want to hear the song I wrote yeah. last night? Yeah. Nice. It's just a very short one. <clears throat> Called I Me Mine. Six, eight. This yeah. timing. <laughs> one, two, three, four, but, but three, four, not. Three, four, when you don't do it, bum, tit, tit, bum, yeah, tit, right. tit. I don't give a fuck if you don't want it in your show. <laughs> yeah, we've mentioned it before that George kind of half-heartedly was thinking about doing his own stage musical at this yeah, time. Yeah, I think he was writing it with Derek Taylor. It never went anywhere, but... But he was planning it, and he was certainly setting things aside for it. And that may well be another reason why he had so much material for All Things Must Pass. Yeah, maybe. He seemed to be able to churn out songs pretty rapidly at that point, because... You know, he's going to do Wah Wah and Hear Me Lord. And there's a bunch of songs that he will come back. I wrote this last night. I mean, mine. Both Paul and George were very much in that mode. Right. They're taking all the creativity of the band into their own halves. Oh, well, there's this and there's that. Okay, we move on to the eighth. This is really the first time we see George Martin significantly around at Twickenham. He was around, and you see him a little bit more in the film, but from the stills that we get here, this is the first time we kind of see George Martin show up. Right, but there was no reason for him to. They weren't recording. All they were doing was kind of routining songs at that point. He didn't need to be there. As you said, the Apple truck was there. Maybe there was some thought that he could be useful at that point. George makes the comment that let it be should go to aretha franklin i always thought that was a paul idea so that's mentioned in there and and we get into long and winding road we get the full length version of the codename russia discussion right stupid (laughs) (laughs) again only significant because the bootleggers made it so right some point on my notes here is hog was probably not the guy to direct this He's not on the same page. We get a series of stills of Dennis O'Dell showing them the set. That is probably better explained in the film where the, you know, the whole around the Beatles part two thing. Right. Although we do get John talking about that he wants the pieces afterwards. And he talks a little bit about what he wants to do with them. <laughs> ah, that John. At this point, it's more 
they're still not sure. So I guess they're thinking still that they're going to record this show in Twickenham and they're going to build a stage somewhere on this massive film set. Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. At one point, they were actually considering doing a, a cavern-type show. It, it changes constantly. Somewhere in this page, Hogg really pushes the idea that the show should open explosively and it should end very weepy. It just goes to show you that nobody knew exactly where they wanted to go with it. Right. And I also note that, you know, people keep throwing out ideas that have already been shot down. I mean, the idea that they were going to go to Tunisia (laughs) should have just stopped on day three. You can see George becoming more frustrated as not only we're going to go to Tunisia, but we're going to take a boat. (laughs) Well, and from the very beginning, Ringo said, I'm not leaving the country. Right. That's like day two, he says that. And Paul says early on, we've already said that we're not leaving the country, but it keeps getting brought up and discussed, the idea that they'd take the boat and put an audience on it. (laughs) We can just imagine what that might have been like. Uh, Yeah, it was a disaster. And you, you can also go back to the beginnings of Apple. And George just says that when he came back from India, he couldn't believe what had sprung up. So he was not happy camper. The day ends, the eighth ends with the series of stills of John Yoko waltzing. Those are really nice. Right. The I'm mine bit from the film, but you actually see them waltzing in close up. Right. And you could see how at least nominally nicer the background was when they had it fully lit up with the rainbow spectrum behind them. <laughs> Right. It wasn't just quite this ugly bear set. On to the ninth. The ninth was kind of just another day, really. The calm before the storm. Well, wait, there was no storm, was there? <laughs> we see Mal in his uh, leather fringe jacket. I like that. <laughs> That's that day that Paul was playing the piano and Ringo said that he, he could sit and watch this for hours. Roll 92B. The time is now 5 to uh, 11. The slate number continues 171.
there's a nice shot on page 80 of John, but <laughs> you can see his eyes. He's out of it. I say that, but he may just be concentrating on the music, but he's kind of out of it. Yeah, I guess. Well, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not convinced that he was the complete drugged out freak that some people say he was. I agree with you. There's a series of three shots of John to the right of frame and lots of pink purple to the left. <laughs> and you look at the bottom one there and he looks pretty you know, level-headed, pretty clear-eyed. Right. From minute to minute, you can't really tell. Right. Another nice color shot of them sitting around. But, I mean, you know, this has been a week of this now. I can see them getting bored with it. On to the 10th. This is where Dick James comes in. Discussing an acquisition. What they just picked up for Northern at that point in time. <laughs> you mean the company that Dick James is getting ready to sell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How does that work? <laughs> Dick James looks every bit the slimy. There are a couple of pricks as far as I can tell. So quit that backing band nonsense, find a place to work together, and write me tunes that grey-haired old tramps will whistle in the street. We said that from the film, but you look at the stills, it's even <laughs> more. There's one photo in particular where he has the fakest grin on his face. Right. And then, well, I think I'll be... I'm leaving. What? The band now. When? Now. I have to look up one of the books about the time span between Dick James leaving and George leaving. Maybe an hour and a half. We've got most of that on the Niagara's. Right. If Dick James was there, they were you know, an hour or so with Dick James. Then they played a little bit. And then as they were going off to lunch was George saying, you know, I'm out of here. Peace out. Is Again, both in the film and reading the book, you can just see how people are throwing out ideas and George is just becoming more frustrated because his opinions is not being listened to. and It's just kind of spoken down. And he's a founding partner. <laughs> Things kind of take a change. Well, in the story, certainly, but in the way that it's presented, there's a real nice action shot of John where he's sort of out of focus when they're doing the Yoko thing that afternoon. And there's Paul just holding his Hoffner up against the amp, causing feedback, making feedback. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting moment for me to see. Not so much taking pictures, but stills don't convey that whole little afternoon. It's kind of like shock from the explosion of oh we've just lost george the film i think maybe shows that off a little bit yeah. better you know again there are things which work better in the film and there are things which work better through stills and on the written page to get the whole story you have to have both of them you're gonna miss that in the book but the book i think catalogs the journey from slight frustration to i'm leaving we had a little bit of discussion about what went on. The aftermath of the next week, I think that plays better here than it does in the film. We had lots of stills of them sitting around and, you know, looking kind of, well, what's going on and how are we going to do this? We get the full version of the Yoko was talking for John conversation that they had sitting around here, of which we only get excerpts in the, in the documentary. Yeah, it's true. 
Tony Richmond sitting in the middle of the circle. <laughs> Although, let's see, <laughs> that that's one thing. It's like that's a little bit weird. I guess he just had nothing to film, so it's like, well, I'm gonna plop down right here. <laughs> yeah, it's take Ted. I guess Ringo is the only Beatle we actually see in the circle here. You have Linda, you have Ringo, you have Tony Richmond, you have Glenn Johns, and you have Michael Lindsay Hogg. Right. This is when we're waiting for another Beatle. <laughs> They're sitting here trying to decide what's going on. Are we going to call George? Oh, we can't call George. George has gone down to Liverpool. Yeah. I guess the shot was taken when Paul's on the phone to John. That would probably be what Paul's Paul is away on the phone to John. Yeah. We get some nice black and white shots of them attempting to rehearse, although the photos show you that they weren't really into it. You know, what are we doing? We better rehearse because we might still have something going on here. Yeah. Work on some lyrics. I think they worked on Get Back, the lyrics for that. And then it ends with a really nice two-page black and white spread. This is... uh, Pages 106 and 107, Paul, John, and Ringo sitting around with Mal, his back facing you. And they're all at least looking reasonably happy here. They're, they're <laughs> looking at, I guess Mal has the lyrics written on this piece of paper and they're, they're trying to figure something right. out. So even without George, I mean, that's the way the future would play out. You get three of them around and they would still kind of be the Beatles. Yeah. Okay, on to the uh, the 14th. That's the Peter Sellers day. This episode is actually better than the movie because this is where you get John being really cheeky and naughty. And the way he cracks up Paul in spite of himself is really pretty priceless. And there is an instance where you can see that John was pretty out of it in the morning because we know he was recording the two junkies interview that morning and he, he went off and got sick from substances the night before and then he actually goes and tells paul about it again i think you're right that's probably better in the film. Yeah. <laughs> right on to the 16th of january which is tear down there there's a nice montage of uh, mal and friends actually tearing down the set while paul is at the piano singing oh darling i guess i felt in the movie like he brought oh darling in and this was him getting it down, you know. But he actually had introduced the song way earlier. Days before, yeah. yeah. So. All right. Because nothing in Get Backland can ever be just one part, <laughs> we're going to take a break here. Uh, we're going to leave you as we wander into Apple Studios. <laughs> right. And we're going to go through both the rest of the uh, Get Back sessions the mystery sessions that are presented here at the end of the book. And we'll talk a little bit more about get back a year on next week. Yeah, Lots to go. So uh, look forward to finishing this up. We are off then. We will be back in a week. And listen to Toppermost of the Poppermost. All right. Thanks a lot, folks. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
Mm. Let it be. So I get a call from the head of Apple who heard, you know, it's a very small world, this music scene in England. It wasn't like it in America. And, and so they knew, I, they heard that I was photographing the Rolling Stones, so they called me, Neil Aspinall in particular. Uh, and to make a long story short, I went down to the stage. Initially, they said I, it was impossible. I couldn't shoot them. So I went down because all the people that were filming Let It Be, which is going to be re-released this year, directed by Peter Jackson, who I met with, and needless to say, one of the greatest filmmakers alive today, especially technically. Um, and he interviewed me and he interviewed everybody. So he's doing a big release, re-release on Let It Be. So look forward to it. Um, to the left is Glenn Johns, a dear friend of mine. To the back is Tony Richmond, looking through the camera, cameraman. And they're in the beginning stages of Let It Be, filming on Twickenham sound stages. Now, at the time I took this picture, I had maybe been working as a real photographer for about eight months. So how you get luckier than I did, you can't. I think... I think at that point in time, if you cared about music, this is January 2nd, January 3rd, 1969, there just wasn't a better place to be on the planet than where I'm standing, you know? Yeah. And they're working. I'm right there. I never say anything. I'm in and out. I'm pretty quick. I don't, I don't draw attention to myself. And, and, and then I just, then I get hired to keep shooting throughout the filming of Let It Be, basically it's what happens. Please. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. Hey, hey. 